Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Ravanit Nechama Goldman Barish on Parashat Vayera. What's your favorite spring holiday? Is it Tubishvat, Purim, or Pesach? With the Pardes Daily app, you can learn more about each in just 15 minutes a day. Download the app now, select your track, Bible, Halakha, or Hasidut, and you're ready to learn. Visit www.pardes.org.il forward slash Pardes Daily. And now, here is Rabbanit Nachama Goldman Barish. While last week's Torah portion, Shmod, had many women central to the narrative, women figure far less centrally in Va'ira, limited to the mention of four in the genealogy of the tribes. After Va'ira, women almost completely disappear, with the exception of Miriam, who appears to dance with the women after the parting of the Red Sea, and the thronging women who donate their mirrors to the tabernacle at the very end of Exodus. In Va'ira, all of the mentions are located in chapter 6, and include Yocheved, mother of Moshe, Shimon's unnamed Canaanite wife, and two priestly wives, Elisheva, the wife of Aaron, and the unnamed wife of Eleazar, Aaron's son. Each of these minimalist mentions opens up a platform of interpretation, interweaving various other biblical narratives into the text. In this podcast, I will relate to several Midrashim that well reflect how Midrash interlocks pieces of biblical text one into the other. The first woman mentioned has no name. It is, it is unclear why she had appears at all. The verse reads, the, son, the sons of Shimon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. This unnamed woman gives birth to a son who oddly bears the same name as the future king of Israel. The Midrashic lens uses this to develop a backstory for Dina after her brothers Shimon and Levi destroy Shechem and kill all of the men. The text never tells us what happened to Dina in the aftermath of her rape. I'll pause to say that I have taped a podcast on Parshat Vayishlach on the story of Dina with a, a different reading than the traditional one, and I'm sure there are other podcasts on Elma that relate to Parshat Vayishlach and the story of Dina and Shechem, so I would advise readers who either don't know the story or want more information about that story to look at some other podcasts. The Midrash, however, associates her with this anonymous woman appearing in connection with Shimon at the end of Genesis and again here in the beginning of Exodus. And they took Dina out of Shechem's house and went out. That verse appears at the end of the story. It's the first time they actually interact with Dina after she has been disgraced. And, uh, and they take her out. And Rabbi Yehuda says they dragged her out and left because it suggests some sort of resistance, the fact that they take her out of Shechem's house. Rabbi Chama says, for it is hard for a woman who has had relations with a Gentile to leave him. She was saying, where shall I hide my disgrace? Until Shimon swore that he would marry her. And this is what the verse means when it says, Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. In other words, that she lay with a descendant of Canaan. And our sages said that Shimon took her and buried her in the land of Canaan. That's the end of the Midrash. And in this Midrash, the text explores the narrative of Dina, suggesting that hidden in the verse is the possibility that this unnamed woman is Dina, and she is called 
the son of the Canaanite woman, in other words, Shaul is called the son of the Canaanite woman. She's called a Canaanite woman because she lay with a Canaanite, meaning Shem, and conceived. So this, of course, is not reflective of any sort of historical reading of the text. But the Midrash presents a shocking suggestion that she marries her brother, or her brother marries her, to hide her disgrace of this illegitimate pregnancy and to give her protection. I will pause to say that the Midrash, to my mind, creates more problems than it solves. Levi and Shimon have the last word in the story of Shechem aggressively stating, shall our sister be turned into a whore to defend their violent behavior. The the Midrash has Shimon marry his full sister, not even a half-sister, as might have been somewhat acceptable in the ancient Near East, and as will be seen below in the Midrashim about Yocheved, help solve some of the issues in Amram marrying his aunt. This certainly would seem to exacerbate her dishonor, possibly turning her more into a whore, than to shield her. However, the Midrash allows the text to solve certain problems. Why do we need to know about this anonymous woman, given that the brothers probably all married Canaanite women? So what what difference does it make? Why is she being singled out? Certainly we know Yehuda married a Canaanite woman. If she is in fact Dina, the Midrash allows us to close off that unhappy story with the birth of a child given an auspicious name and a man willing to protect his sister. To me, the protection of Shimon or the protection offered by Shimon mirrors the protection found in a story later in Tanakh given by Absalom to Tamar after she is brutally raped by their half-brother Amnon before he goes and eventually murders Amnon to defend Tamar's honor. Tamar, however, remains desolate. She never married, never bore children in her brother's house until she died. Absalom actually names his daughter Tamar in tribute to this lost sister. So we have a Tanakh story where a brother takes in a sister and gives her protection, and she uh, tragically dies Shomema, barren and desolate. And I feel that the Midrash here mirrors that story, but ends with a birth, a little more hopeful perhaps, uh, a birth that does not cross incest boundaries because the child is not Shimon's, and so Dina is protected and uh, ends up with a child, so slightly happier perhaps than the Avshalom and Tamar story. This Midrash ends with a second voice claiming that Shimon buried her in Canaan, which is why she's called the Canaanite. That's another suggestion. Apparently after they went down to Egypt, because the text in Genesis counts her among those who go down. Shimon took the pains to bring her body back and bury her in the land of Israel. That perhaps was the final kindness her brother could show her after violently upending her life and closing the door to any possibility of a normative family structure in Shrem. Uh, and so he brings her back to be buried near her parents. Moving on to the second woman. Yocheved is the second woman mentioned. While in Shemot, we are merely told that a man from Levi takes a woman from Levi and impregnates her with the future redeemer Moshe, in chapter 6, we are given important details, including the names of his parents. Verse 20, Amram took to wife his a father's sister, Yocheved, and she bore him Aaron and Moshe. The span of Amram's life was 137 years. In this source, Moshe's sister Miriam is notably missing. 
Exodus 2 referred to an unnamed sister of Moshe. Exodus 15 verse 20 identified her as Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister. Numbers chapter 12 does not acknowledge her relationship with either man, nor when she dies is her sibling connection stated. Only in Numbers chapter 26 verse 59, when Yocheved and Amram are mentioned as the parents of Aaron, Moshe and their sister Miriam is a textual connection made between all five members of the family. Certainly very curious, worth exploring. But back to Yocheved, because Miriam doesn't appear in this chapter. Her name apparently has within it the the beginning of the name of God as presented in the Yudke Vavke, meaning glory. As noted in the Torah, a woman's commentary, Moshe's mother is the first person recorded in the Bible with a name containing elements of God's name. The first two letters, Yah, are a shortened form of the Yudke Vavke. The tradition that Moshe announced to the Israelites that Yudke Vavke is the name of their God is thus embedded in his maternal lineage. If his mother's be- mother bears a semblance of this name of God, Moshe learned it from her since the narrative in Exodus 2 makes clear that even after Moshe has been placed in the basket and floated down the Nile, the daughter of Pharaoh discovers and saves him, returning him to his biological mother as caretaker until he is weaned. The verse in Numbers not only includes Miriam, but reports that Yocheved was daughter of Levi who was born to Levi in Egypt. The Midrash then adds that she was conceived on the way to Egypt and was born between the walls at the entrance as the Bnei Yisrael enter the, the country. Although the Torah asserts that Yaakov's household who came to Egypt numbered 70 souls, the rabbis noted that only 69 individuals are listed. And so one of the explanations of this discrepancy is that Yocheved completed the number seven. She was not included in the list because she was still in her mother's womb. Through this interpretive thread, Yocheved is mother to three of the nation's leaders and becomes the essential link between the generation that went down to Egypt with God's promise of Exodus ringing in their ears and the one that comes out in fulfillment of that destiny. For the Midrashic interpreters, there is some discomfort with the idea that Amra married his aunt, a relationship explicitly prohibited in the Torah in chapter 18 in Leviticus. Two suggestions are given by rabbinic interpretation. One is that the marriage was pre-Sinaitic, so normal restrictions did not yet apply. This is similar to the explanations given for two of the patriarchs who seemed to also engage in prohibited relationships. The first was Avraham, who claimed to be married to his sister, Sarah, in the book of Breshit, not once but twice. The second was Yaakov, who married two sisters. Both of these types of marriages will be featured on the list of sexual prohibitions commanded after the revelation at Sinai. Second, another Midrash clarifies that she was his aunt because Yocheved and Amram's father shared the same father, Levi. So Amram's father was the brother of Yocheved, both of them born to Levi. But they were not born to the same mother, which means that they are only partially related and did not come out of the same womb. This, too, is reminiscent of the Avram-Sara narrative in which Avram explains that he and Sarah only share a father and not a mother. Somehow, sharing a womb creates more of a taboo, even pre-Sinai, than sharing the seed of a father. Other Midrashim, in order to flesh out Yocheved's character, connect her and Elisheva with the midwives in chapter 1 who defy Pharaoh and continue birthing Hebrew babies despite the risk to their lives. Moshe's mother takes shape against the backdrop of these midrashim, making her worthy of birthing baby Moshe, who will spend the first few years of his life nursing from her breast before making his way into Pharaoh's palace. The third woman mentioned is Elisheva, who is illustrious because of father, brother, husband, and four sons. 
We actually never hear of her again in the biblical text. However, the Midrash brings her to life by pairing her with Yocheved, as mentioned above, in the Midrashic association with Shifra and Pua, the midwives who defied Pharaoh. In Leviticus Rabbah, there is also a Midrash reflecting on the tragic and untimely death of Nadav and Avihu, the older two sons of Aaron and Elisheva, which highlights Elisheva. The Midrashic author quotes God as saying to the wicked, the righteous were never happy in this world of mine, and you seek to be happy? Behind this statement is a recognition that awareness of mortality and death, lurking constantly in the background of our lives, mars true happiness. Elisheva is brought to illustrate this heightened awareness in the aftermath of tragedy. And the Midrash goes as follows. Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadab, did not enjoy happiness in the world. True, she witnessed five crowns in one day. Her brother-in-law was a king. Her brother was a prince. Her husband was high priest. Her two sons were deputy high priests. Her grandson Pinchas was a priest anointed for war. But when her sons entered to offer incense and were burned, her joy was changed to mourning. The Midrashic author deliberately chose the image of Elisheva, who is absent from the biblical version of the tragedy, where only the response of Aaron is recorded. Her glory is reflected in the greatness of the men who surround her and bring honor and stature to the family and community. Her brother Nachshon is a prince in his tribe. Her husband Aaron, the high priest, her brother-in-law is Moshe. Her sons Nadav and Aviu, as well as Elazar and Itamar, are deputy high priests. And her grandson Pinchas will eventually be anointed as the priest going out with the nation to war. And in one fell swoop, when tragedy strikes, the lens of the story shifts so that instead of pride and happiness, there is the deep, endless, universal mourning, specifically of a mother who has lost her sons. The men recede into the background, and the image of Mordechai Ardan's enormous painting of the Akeda comes to mind. Ardan painted Sarah, enormous in the picture, painted in red in the foreground with her face covered, everything else muted in the presence of such tragic mourning. The Midrash uses this figure of Elisheva to emphasize the great unknowingness of the trajectory of our lives. The last example in this Torah portion is an unnamed woman who is known only as one of the daughters of Putiel and is married to Elazar, son of Aaron. Curiously, we do not hear of the wives of the other sons of Aaron. This allows the Midrash to speculate that Nadav and Avihu deliberately did not marry because they could not find women they felt worthy of them, and this was a possible reason given for their early demise. There is a narrative arc across many Midrashim that asserts that Putiel is actually Jethro, who is Ruel. Ultimately, Jethro is assigned seven names, Yitro, Yeter, Chever, Chovav, Ruel, Putiel, and Keni. Six of them are reflective of the biblical text actually connecting the said name to a familial in-law relationship with Moshe through marriage and each of them reflecting different aspects of his identity and connecting back to the opening of the book of Yitro, which starts with these are the names. The outlier is Putiel, which has no connection whatsoever to Moshe and is a name that is never mentioned again. To quote Yitzchak Heinemann, the Midrashic motive is to breathe life into figures who otherwise would remain but vague shadows for the reader. This certainly seems to apply to the case of Putiel and his daughters, the loose connection comes from the word daughters. It says that Elazar married one of the daughters of Putiel. We know that Ruel had seven daughters, one of whom married Moshe. It stands to reason that his nephew would find a wife from the same family of daughters, suggests the Midrash. So here we have a man named Putiel with daughters. We know that Ruel, 
who is identified with Yitro because Ruel's daughter marries Moshe. And we know that Yitro's daughter marries Moshe. So it's very easy to combine those two into one character. And here we have a man with many daughters. So it stands to reason that he, the nephew of Moshe would find a wife from the same family of daughters. In the Mechilta Drabi Ishmael, Yitro's seven names are examined, and all of them are interpreted to reflect his goodness, and particularly his deep love and connection to God. Putiel is no exception. It is explained that his name reflects his ridding himself of idolatry, based on a somewhat far-fetched wordplay connecting the word Putiel to Patar, which means to be rid of. Shmot Rabbah has a double word play that it reads into the name of Putiel, giving even greater status to this unnamed woman who marries the son of Aaron. And the Midrash begins, And Elazar, Aaron's son, took him, one of the daughters of Putiel, to wife. It does not say the daughter of Putiel, but of the daughters of Putiel, because his wife belonged to two families, to the tribe of Joseph, who conquered Pete-Pate, his passion, and also to Yitro, who fattened Pitam, calves for idolatrous. Here, Putiel's daughter is a descendant of the line of Joseph and of Jethro, with the wordplay of Pitpate and Pitam, which sounds like Putiel, certainly the Pit. Jethro's past as an idolater who Pitam or fattened calves for such purposes is highlighted with the understanding that he eventually gave up such practices, paired with Yosef's ability to Pitpate or conquer his passion. From this formidable union of Joseph and Jethro, we have a woman who is worthy of marrying into the family of priests. In summary, we have looked at the textual references to four singular women in this week's Parsha. The expanded Midrashic narratives further reminds us of how significant women were in the exodus from Egypt and the building of the nation nation. Even the Dina connection to the Canaanite woman brings closure to unanswered questions that were raised in Breshit at the end of Genesis, bringing her down to Egypt and ultimately to a final burial in the resting place of her father and mother, the place in which the nation is ultimately going to be brought. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. You can also subscribe to any of our other podcast channels by visiting us on Spotify or online at elmod.pardes.org. Be sure to tune in next week to listen to Tova Lea Nachmani as she discusses Parashat Bo. Thanks for listening.